Well, good morning, friends. It is a cloudy July day. How many of you are planning on laying on the couch and watching something later? We haven't had a cloudy Sunday in a long time. So uh, glad you made it to church. Uh, let's open the scriptures together to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're continuing. Just a reminder, we are at our fourth letter in Christ's letters to the churches in Revelation. I think it's been a fantastic study that we've uh, been diving in the past, uh, gosh, I don't know how many weeks it's been, but since June. Eleven whole weeks will do, and we're at the fourth letter. That's what I want to do. I want to begin by reading it in its entirety. Uh, but before we do that, we must remember who wrote this letter, who it's from. How many times in prayer do we go into a moment of prayer and we don't remember who we're talking to? But if you pause and you remind yourself that you're talking to God Almighty, to your Heavenly Father, it totally changes that moment of prayer. It takes it from dry to being more alive. So right now, I want us to remember who wrote this letter. This letter is from Christ Jesus. And just imagine if you were to get a letter in the mail from Christ himself. These words would be precious to you. You would not misplace this letter. You would save it in the most precious and guarded place of your house. And so this letter to this church is written from him. Let's read what he has to say. Pick up in chapter 2, verse 18. Jesus writes, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus says, I know your works. I know your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus goes on, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Jesus goes on, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is what Christ writes. Now, here's what we want to do. Good Bible study begins with trying to outline and map out what is this saying right here. So I want to show you the outline 
of this passage. It's got a few different movements, six different ones. It should be on the screen. It goes like this. The first part in verse 18, Jesus starts with a vision. He gives a vision of himself. He says, hey, before you do anything, get your eyes on me. Remember who I am. Okay? This is so much of what Jesus is trying to do in your life. Remember who I am. Then he goes on and he gives an affirmation. He lists the different things that they're doing well in the faith. That's verse 19. Then in verse 20, the third movement of the letter is criticism. He offers a critique. He says, hey, I have this against you. Don't continue to do this. And then verses 21 to 23, he moves into a warning. If you continue down that road, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to hold you accountable. You're destroying yourself and others. And then he moves into a challenge, verses 24 and 25. It's an invitation. It says, hey, repent. Hey, let go of this. Hey, let's go this direction. And then he ends, verses 26 and 29, with a promise, a motivator. If you make a U-turn with me, I'm going to give you the power you need to do it. If you do that, this is what life is going to look like for you. Now, I want to pause here and I want to say this. I think this is a pattern for how Jesus communicates with us, right? He speaks to his churches. We pray, us and the leadership, the elders, we pray, Lord, give us vision for this next season. Show us where we're doing well. Show us where we need to change. And this is the exact pattern in all the letters to the churches upon which he talks. I also think, I don't think it's the only pattern, but I think it's a main pattern for how he talks to us in our own lives. So many of us, we want to grow in hearing God's voice. My friend over here is so spiritual, they always hear God's voice. Why don't I hear God's voice? We want to grow in that. Well, the reality is probably the way that God is communicating with you through his word and through friends is similar to this pattern. So here's what I want to say. If all you hear is criticism, you're missing five other pieces to what Jesus is saying to you. If all you hear from God is criticism, you're not hearing all of what Jesus is saying. If all you hear is affirmation, and no criticism, no challenge. No, let's go this way. Well, one, you just think you're not a sinner and you're doing life great. You know, you think you're perfect and that's not great. That's not true. But if all you're hearing is affirmation, then you're probably missing other things that he's saying. This is a pattern, not the only one, but a pattern for how he speaks to us in prayer. Now, here's what I'm going to do. Before we get any further... I want to teach you how to study the Bible, how to study a passage of Scripture on your own, okay? Too often we make these commitments. We come out of Sunday, we say, man, I need to get in the Word. I need to get up early. I'm going to switch my Google calendar and set my coffee pot, you know, for whatever time. And I'm just going to make it as possible to do as I possibly can. And then it just starts to slowly fade. I think often it's because we don't exactly know what to do when we get there. And so I, 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 I want to do this. You know that proverb, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach him how to fish and you feed him for a lifetime, okay? I thought that was just some country redneck that said that. It's actually an Italian proverb, okay? But it's true. And so on Sundays, I try and feed the congregation with what God's fed me for the week. But that's not enough. I want you to learn how to feed yourself throughout the week. And so I want to teach you. There's three main basics to good Bible study, okay? Three main basics. They'll be on the screen. When you come to a text, just like we're about to do, you're going to have three things. You're going to ask, what is being said? What's this talking about? And make observations. Then you're going to move into, well, what does this mean? 
What does it mean if Jesus talks like this? If Jesus says this? And then thirdly, you ask, what am I supposed to do about it? What's it saying? What's it mean? And what am I supposed to do about it? How am I supposed to think differently or act differently or whatever it is? Simply said, it's observation, interpretation, application. You want to make all three of those movements, okay? And to do really good Bible study, I encourage you to have some resources alongside you, some good Bible commentaries. Um, And I would say this, anytime we're in a series like Revelation for 11 weeks, just buy a couple commentaries to help you in your own study. Okay, so I want to recommend two to you. Recommended them last week. If we could bring those to the screen. One is by a guy named Mike Breen, The Seven Churches. Another one by a guy named N.T. Wright. These are very accessible. They're not big, thick ones. They're smaller. They will help you in your own Bible study. So go to Amazon, and they are not expensive. I think you can get them on Kindle for less than $10, okay? And if you're going to go buy a latte later, you know, I, I don't know, but I went to Starbucks the other day, and it's like it's getting up there. Inflation is real, okay? So spend it on something that I think would really help you. Now, here's what I want to say. But We're about to do this. We're about to do those three movements. And then you do it on your own throughout the week. That's the rhythm of the church. But before we do that, I have to talk about the essence of personal Bible study. The essence of personal Bible study. What it should be all about is this. I put in a phrase. It's about fellowshipping with God over the word in prayer. That's all you're trying to do. It's about fellowshipping with God over the word in prayer. Let me give you a comparison in your real life. What did you do this weekend? Did you hang out with friends? Did you go to dinner? In that moment, here's what you did with your friend. You were fellowshipping with friends over a meal in conversation. It's the same thing with God. Except for the meal is the Bible. That's what you do when you get together at your favorite restaurant. Mine's Last Resort. I will promote them every time I'm up here because I think they make the best pasta. And Kiki's cakes are phenomenal and all the rest. I've been, I've been accused of making people hungry at church because I talk about food a lot. All right? Don't worry. It's coming. You'll have lunch. That's what you're doing is you're fellowshipping with God over the word of God. You're talking about it with the Lord in prayer. That's good Bible study. Okay? It's not, okay, I just need to read this, or, oh, it's just this academic study. No, when I go into prayer, or when I go into studying the Word, I have to amp myself up, first with coffee and then in the Spirit. And I have to preach to myself, so it's this lively interaction with God. And so what I do is when I come into prayer, I just, on on good days, I just say, Lord, I want to meet with you. I just start in prayer. Lord, I want to meet with you right now over your Word. I want to fellowship with you. If I don't do that, I just end up reading it, and it's boring, and it's dry, and there's no intimacy, there's no power. I want to meet with the living God. And so I have to amp myself up in the Spirit and begin to fellowship with Him over His Word in prayer. Most of it begins with figuring out, like a curious detective, what's this passage saying? And then it's like this joyful puzzle you do with the Lord to put it all together and see it at the end. Okay. It should take you into deep fellowship. It should take you into wonder. It should take you into repentance. It should take you into awe. It should take you into insight. What I can tell you is this. The depth of intimacy with God and personal growth that's waiting for you here 
is unlike anything else you'll touch. All the great men and women of the faith, most of them not preachers and pastors, most of them just moms, dads, young people going about their work life, all those saints, they had one thing in common. They loved the Word of God. And they ate it. They ate it. So, let's put it into practice. Let's go to verse 18. Let's put this into practice now. We're going to do those three movements. Verse 18 reads this. Take a look down at your Bible or here on the screen. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So let's make some observations. You just start listing things, okay? The letter starts with the vision of Christ, and he refers to three things. This is not rocket science. You're going to see this. The first one is this. He talks about the Son of God, that he's the Son of God. The second thing he talks about is he has eyes like flames of fire. And then thirdly, and I just marked this in the text, it says he has feet like burnished bronze. Okay? So you make some observations. You see what's there. Then you begin to talk about well, what does this mean? That's where a commentary is going to be very helpful because this is what you would learn. That everything Jesus is saying here is not on accident. This is what you would find. The city of Thyatira that he's writing to was famous for what industry? Bronze. Talks about burnished bronze. It was famous for bronze. Not only that, if you were to grab some of their money, some of their coins, their currency, here is what you would find. These words written on it. The Son of God. And there, there would be an image of the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor was called the Son of God. So how does Jesus start his letter? He says, hey, this is a letter from the true Son of God. Not the Roman emperor, he's just a man. And this is one who has eyes like flames of fire. What did that industry use with, with bronze? Fire. And then what does he reference to? He reference to his feet being burnished bronze. Here's what I know. When Jesus speaks to you, he speaks in your world. Are you, are you a mother? Are you an educator? If you're a mother, he's going to talk about being the one who does the great mothering. If you're an educator, he's going to talk to you about being the one who's the great teacher. If you're a builder, he's going to talk to you about being the great builder. If, if you're in medicine, he's going to talk to you about being the great healer. He's going to get your eyes on him being supreme and him being faithful to you in that area of your life. He's trying to get your eyes off you and your problems and your insufficiency and all those things that I know for me as a pastor, I feel incredibly inadequate. I'm supposed to lead this church? I've felt inadequate for about eight years now. What is he constantly doing to me? He's speaking in my world about pastor things, and he's saying, get your eyes on me. I'm the great pastor. Before I got married, some of you heard this story, I was freaking out because I said, I can't be a great husband. I just can't. I'm a sinner. There's no way every day I can be selfless towards my wife. The Lord spoke to me. He said, I'm the great husband. Let me play the husband in you. This is how he speaks. So it opens in that powerful way. That's the vision. What's the second part? We've already outlined it. It's the affirmation. He begins to affirm the church on some things they're doing well. This is how he would speak to you and us in the same way. What does he say? Let's do some observation. Verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. I just see the Lord saying this with joy. 
that he's intimately aware of five affirmations. Just list them. I know your works, and here they are. Your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. And the NIV translates it this way, that you're now doing more than you did at first. So, wow, he's really affirming this church. We're just seeing what it says. It's a pretty good and it's a pretty balanced report card. I don't know about you, but I hated report card day. Hated it. I love to learn, but I was a terrible student. Anyone in that category? Tell your parents that. Maybe you'll get away with it. It didn't work for me, but it was true. I love to learn, but I was a terrible student. Hated report card day. They have a good report card. In fact, what it says right there in that verse is the church was doing better than they had ever done. But Christ says they face a choice. You're going to see this. You're doing better than you've ever done, Christ said. But you face a choice as he goes on. Dr. Brigman, an Emory professor, elder at Grace Neville, he said it this way. It is a choice to continue to follow him and what he says is good or a choice to follow what their culture says is good. That's the main theme of this letter. Which when I hear that, I'm like, huh, we can kind of relate. We must have a lot to learn from this church in Thyatira. So let's move on. Vision, affirmation, and now criticism. Verse 20, Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jezebel is a reference, if you know your Bibles, back to 1 Kings 16, talking about the wife of King Ahab. It's kind of a code name that he's using for this woman, that he gives her this name Jezebel because of how she's acting. Now, what's it talking about? Again, we're just observing. What's it saying here? And what does it mean? What you find is this. Christ's criticism of the congregation is concerning what? What does it say? I have this against you. That's the wrong letter. Where's the other one? Verse 20, I have this against you that you what? Tolerate. Tolerate. His criticism is about their tolerance. It was was tolerance of a woman who was causing serious trouble in the congregation. What Jesus says is that they lacked the ability to kindly but firmly intolerate her false teaching and seduction. Now, that word toleration or tolerance, we hear it all the time. Toleration is preached by our postmodern culture as one of the greatest virtues you could have is tolerance. And to a certain degree, I, I would affirm that. Tolerance actually came from the Christian church, if you know the history well. And certain biblical understanding, I would say, yes, there's a biblical tolerance that is good and right and from Christ. But there is such a thing as biblical intolerance. And I want to show it to you. Biblical intolerance. We have that definition coming on the screen. It goes like this. It's a kind of refusal to accept views, beliefs, and behaviors contrary to the Bible's. There's a way of biblical intolerance. It's kind, but it's firm. That says, I'm just not going to go with that. I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to let my kids think that way or be around that. 
And what Jesus says is they weren't willing to do this. They just let it happen in their church. They didn't want to make anyone upset. They didn't want to ruffle any feathers. They probably thought, well, Christ is all loving, so I don't know. It'd be really difficult. I don't like confrontation. I'm just going to tolerate it. And he says, hey, this is not a moment for toleration. It's a moment for kind biblical intoleration. Biblical intolerance, kindly refusing certain things in your midst, is a virtue throughout Scripture. Just want to show it to you briefly. 1 Timothy 4. He says, having nothing to do with. That's biblical intolerance. Irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 2 Timothy 2. But avoid, avoid it, refuse it. Irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And then 2 Timothy 2. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Does that not speak into today? How many polarized quarrels and controversies are going on? You see, we think of, oh, i got to be tolerant. i got to be tolerant. I want to be like Christ, right? But the reality is in this moment we need biblically intolerant. I'm not going to get caught up in that political polarization, that debate, that whatever, because I'm trying to be kind and not create controversy and quarrel. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to be big, biblically intolerant so that I can be incredibly tolerant and inclusive to everyone here who has different political views. See, Christ's wisdom is just higher. It's so balanced. It's so, I don't know what to say, but good. It's just good and right. So he's giving that wisdom to them. Go back to the text. Jezebel has three things she's doing that are causing two evils. Again, we're just studying the word. You see it right there. The first one is she's calling herself a prophetess. So she's calling herself that she has authority. And Jesus says calling herself. So it wasn't she was saying it, not the Lord. And in that fake authority, she's what? Teaching. That's what it says in the verse. And she's seducing. And those three activities are causing two evils in the church. They're practicing sexual immorality and they're eating food sacrifice to idols. Now, when I read that, I'm like, Psh, all right, we're doing all right as a church, I guess. That's pretty bad. That's not going so well. Maybe our report card, I'm not so afraid of. And you have to ask this question when you study. You ask questions when you study the word. It keeps you going. What's this all about? When I read it, I said, how could these Jesus-following Christians get caught up in this? And so this is what I found. Again, your commentary will help you. In Thyatira, it's very interesting. There was these things called trade guilds. They were like unions that we have today. Like, a, like the car builders have a union or whatever it is. Teachers have a union. They had unions. And each union you were a part of had this false god that the company would pray and sacrifice to for their success. For the business to go well. That's how it worked back then. So anyone in the company who refused, who practiced biblical intolerance to do this would have been seen as a traitor who didn't care about the success of the company and ultimately who didn't care about the entire community. 
But let's get what's going on. He's writing to Christians. They were Christians who followed a book that said they're to have no other gods but the one true God and creator and his son, Jesus Christ. And this is where Jezebel enters in. That difficult environment where they have to make a choice. She enters in. She waters down their faith, revises it to fit the difficult cultural situation they're in. In so many words, Jezebel says this. It's okay to follow Jesus and to still pray and sacrifice to their gods. It's okay. God's okay with that. We're still following him. He knows the situation we're in. And she begins to tinker with the faith and bring it down below the bar that Christ has set it at. Not only that, this is where the sexual immorality part comes in. They would have these festivals at the temples of these gods for these businesses, these unions. And on the weekends, they would have these festivals and major holidays. And during the day, they would sacrifice and pray to the false patron god. And then in the evenings, like many things do, they would turn into a party. And the party would turn into some pretty debaucherous activities like group sex and orgies as the New Testament talks about. And if you were looking for a prostitute back in that world, you went to the temple, the sacred prostitutes. So it would devolve into this, things that clearly Christ isn't for. Now, here's what you got to understand. All of this was seen as good and right in that Thyatiran culture. which is normal. In fact, you were going against the health of the city and its success if you didn't participate in these festivals. It'd be like... Where are the Raymonds today? Why aren't they here? Do they not care? You'd feel that social pressure from your neighbors and your family to go along with it. And if you continued to refuse as a Christian biblical intolerance, here's what would happen to you. You'd be marginalized, canceled, and you'd be fired, kicked out of the company, and then John Raymond would be blacklisted from getting work anywhere in the town. This is serious stuff. Imagine if I lived back then, and let's say I wasn't a pastor, I was one of these builders of these tradesmen with the copper and the bronze, and I was a follower of Jesus. The immense pressure I would feel to follow Jesus on one hand and to feed my family. If I don't go, honey, they're going to kick me out, and I'm not going to get work, and I don't know how we're going to provide for our kids. I have three little kids. I don't know how we're going to put food on the table. I don't know how we're going to get them in the right schools. I don't know how, am I going to ruin their future? Jezebel and some other people at the church saying we can do it this way. Where we still follow Jesus and yet Shay's future is secure. I would have felt, you would have felt immense pressure to accept that watered down teaching of the faith. You would really really have to believe Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about not being anxious about all the things you need to provide for your family. But he says this, he says, John, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Don't be unrighteous in those acts. Seek first my kingdom. I know it's going to be tough for you to believe my promise. But seek first my kingdom in this work situation and my righteousness. And this is what I promise you, John, what the verse says. All the things you need will be added to you. 
I'll take care of your family. But seek first me and my way. I'll, I'll take care of you. They had a costly choice to make. A choice to follow Jesus and what he says is good. Or a choice to follow what their culture says is good. Jezebel was revising the faith and Christ was not okay with it. Verse 21, he gives the warning. See how the text is just coming alive as we're doing some of this good Bible study that you can definitely do on your own. My, my role here is Sunday to start the conversation. Give you everything you need and then for you to continue it with the Lord throughout your week. Verse 21, and we're going to have to speed this up. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Christ is clear with the congregation that he gave her time to repent. That's what the verse says. And he thought that detail was very important for them to know. He didn't want them to think that he was overly harsh with her. He says, I gave her time. I worked. I tried to woo her to repent. And see, we believe Christ being all good, all wise, and all loving, that he gave her precisely the right amount of ample time to repent. But she drew a line in the sand, not Christ. She refused. That's the language. Just look at your text. She refused to repent. She was not willing, nor was ever going to be willing, to come back to the Lord. That's the language he uses. If we go to that Second Peter verse, got a bunch of passages we don't have time for. But Second Peter three nine says this: The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's his heart. But here's what I know to be true: there is there, there is no coming back from an all out and final refusal. It's dangerous territory. She refused to repent of that sinful behavior, and she never was going to be willing to do otherwise, and that warranted serious accountability, serious judgment that we read about. Now, I want to say this. This is really important to get, or you're going to end up with a monster God. If God did not bring accountability and judgment, then he would be an absent and evil-enabling parent. He would be a terrible parent. I cannot tell you how many times I've said to my children, how does it go? If you do that again, I will put you in timeout. If you do that again, I will take away that toy. If you do that again, I will take away your passing. And there's all kinds of little things you do with your kids. If you do that again, this is what will happen. I will bring accountability and judgment. I do this because whatever they're doing, whatever Jack is up to or Shay Judd's too little, but whatever they're up to, their behavior is doing harm to themselves and it's doing harm to the people around them. If you keep tackling Jakey, it's not going to go well. He's going to get hurt. If you do that again, Jack, I'm going to put you in timeout. It's accountability, out of love. It's not easy. It's not pleasant. I'd much rather just let it go on, but then I'd be a bad parent. And imagine if God didn't bring any accountability and let his children completely destroy themselves and each other. We would say, he's a monster God. He's a negligent, evil-spreading parent. That's where all judgment and accountability comes from when it comes from God our Father. 
And so he says, verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. When I hear that, I'm like, well, yeah, you sure are. I think everyone's going to know that your eyes of flaming fire are searching our minds and hearts. If this kind of accountability happens. And yet, the entire time, you see in the verse, there is this offer to miss this judgment that's heading their way like an off-ramp from a tornado that's coming. He says, he says, unless they repent of her works. Now, this kind of judgment can be really hard to swallow. Strike their children dead? Can we be honest about the text? That's hard for me to look at. How could Christ do this? That's a question you should ask. That's not irreverent. But I think that when we react that way, we don't take the time to think it further. We miss two foundational truths. Number one, Christ being all good, all loving, and all wise only makes the best of decisions. He's never made a bad one, actually, because he's all knowing and all loving. He's never made one that contradicted his love. He's never not brought all of his lovely attributes into his decision making, saying, I'll keep that one back, whether it's grace or truth or holiness or patience and the like. He brings all of who he is to all the decisions he's ever made. Number two, Christ's decisions are not up for debate. He is God. He knows exactly what is the right thing to do. And he has every right to do it. I would say it this way. God has every right to do the right thing. God has every right to do the right thing. Mm, I'm running out of time. Got to skip on. That is good stuff, but we'll skip on. Let's end it here. Verse 24, he offers the challenge. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, that terrifies me, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, Jesus says, only this, hold fast what you have until I come. That term, hold fast, get this, I'm about to, we're about to explode this even more for you. That term, hold fast, in the biblical language is the word krateo, krateo. It means to lay hold of, to seize, to grip, to keep carefully, to never let go of. Such imagery for what we're to do with our precious faith. Criteo it. Don't let go of it. It is as precious and priceless like your child or your riches or the password to your Bitcoin account. I've been told if you let go of that, then it's over. You've got to curtail that. That's what it's talking about. You lay hold of it and guard it, not letting anyone come and take it from you. Like you lay hold of your child if hurricane winds were coming your direction. Curtail it. Don't let go of your most prized possession at all costs, your Christian faith. Friends, and I say this out of seasons of doubt. I don't care what depths of despair 
What desolation of deconstruction or what defilement of sin. Whatever you do, curteo, don't let go of that faith. When I studied this more, this curteo idea, I just, I just, again, prayer, right? You're fellowshipping with God over the word in prayer. I just found myself saying, thank you, Jesus, that you've held fast to me so that I could hold fast to you. I'm not confused about whose strength it's been gripping the faith. It's been his. Thank you, you've held fast onto me so that I could hold fast onto you these 17 years. Buddy Hoffman, the founding pastor, used to say this to me often. He said, I want to be standing at the end of my life with two things in my hands. In one hand, I want to be holding the Bible, and in the other, I want to be holding my spouse. I want to make it. I want to criteo. I want to endure. I don't know what temptations out of hell are going to come for me. I don't know what tragedies are going to strike me and my family. I don't know what discouragements and unsuccesses are going to plague me. But I do know this. I want to hold on. I want to do what it says. I want to overcome. I want to conquer. And I want to keep his will to the end. Friends, I don't know how difficult and dark things might get to be a Christian in this nation. Or in this post-pandemic world, I just don't know. Maybe we're overplaying it, maybe we're underplaying it. I don't know. But I know one thing, we will always have a choice before us. It's the same choice they had in Thyatira. The choice to follow Jesus and what he says is good. Or the choice to follow what our culture says is good. Jesus ends with a promise. It's for us this morning. The one who conquers in this room, by his grace, verse 26, who keeps my works or my will unto the end, to him or her I will give authority over the nations. They will rule with, with them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself has received authority from my Father, saying, the authority I have, I'm going to give to you. If you curtail with me by my power. And he says, I will give you the morning star. And so, friends... He who has an ear this morning, let them hear what the Spirit of